वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम देवकनंदम कृष्ण वंदे जगद्गु So we are studying the Bhagavad Gita, and we are on um, chapter three, almost towards the end of the uh, of the third chapter. Arjuna has asked a question, um, prompted by what, instigated by what internal force? Does a person unwillingly does not want to do anything wrong, still does what is sinful, what is wrong, and we keep doing this? So what is it that makes us forces us? um to do what is wrong does doesn't does not allow us to do what we know to be right we all know what is right and wrong but we cannot follow it why so this is a very fundamental question in spiritual life atakena prayukto yam papam charati purushah anichchanapi vashneya baladivaniyojita we had seen the question last time so this is really a practical question not only does this force this power within us not allow us to do what is uh, right that we know what is right and what is wrong and yet we are unable to follow the path of dharma dharma and adharma right and wrong moral and immoral why do we keep making these mistakes not only that spiritual life that becomes so difficult why is it so difficult um the path of bhakti we are supposed to love god intensely without any desire for anything else just love you know fall in love with god but why is it so difficult why is it so difficult to love god why don't we feel that uh, that coming automatically um uh, karma yoga in the path of karma yoga we are supposed to perform all our activities unselfishly without attachment why is it so difficult to do anything uh, unselfishly uh, why do selfish motives keep coming in uh, in the path of meditation we're supposed to focus and meditate and say repeat the mantra or focus on the form of the deity why is it so difficult why does the mind keep uh, why is the mind so restless why does it keep getting scattered yeah. and in the path of gyana to know that i am brahman i am the witness consciousness not body and mind why is it so difficult to grasp this why is it so difficult to get clarity about this and difficult to stay with it so in all the yogas You see, there's difficulties there, and the answer Sri Krishna gives. He says, "Sri Bhagavan Uvacha Kama Esha Krodha Esha Rajaguna Samudbhava Mahashano Mahapapma Vidhyenam Ihavayrinam." He says, "The cause of all of this is." kama krodha desire and anger and both de- and desire and anger can be collapsed back into one that is desire kama we discussed last time that uh, it is desire which is when it is obstructed it becomes anger any time anybody is angry any time we become angry if we calmly uh, introspect and see where did that anger come from something which we wanted explicitly implicitly we wanted it should be like this that person should behave like this or the situation should be like this it was not like that and so we react in a flash of anger it, the reaction could be different if there is a one person who is obstructing our desire we become angry on him or her if there is no person it's a impersonal thing like coronavirus or something 
but we still feel angry and irritated and somebody who is innocent but we take out our anger on that person if it is a very powerful person or some which is obstructing our desire maybe boss or somebody you cannot get angry on the boss but then the result is tension or fear same problem our desire is obstructed somewhere we wanted it this way not working that way you may ask what about righteous anger i want to do good for other people and somehow people are uh, making uh, making it difficult they're obstructing me from doing what is good people get angry with children i'm doing it for their own good and see how they are behaving especially teenage kids huh? sometimes you get upset right so there is no righteous anger uh, you may be willing want you may want to do something good and that's that's all right you should do it uh, and one can do that without getting angry it's natural to get upset but uh, don't they even there there is some desire which is being obstructed uh, it is much if you want to do something good for somebody else without any selfish motive one can do it without getting angry this uh, buddhist monk thiknathan who is at the root of the this wonderful mindfulness which has become so popular in the western world in the whole world now so it originated uh, in the west Uh, from Thiknathan who came from Vietnam he is very ill now i heard there was a vietnamese monk in uh, at harvard uh, last year he was telling me that uh, that thiknathan has gone back to vietnam and he is critically ill but anyway when um, many of you must have heard about him his book the um, the uh, that uh, the art of mindfulness what was the name of the book the art of mindfulness i think the mindfulness uh, the miracle of mindfulness the miracle of mindfulness the classic book if you have not read it please read it so there he uh, uh, so not in that book in an earlier writing he says that uh, when he first came to the west in europe he went came to france i think in 1970s at that time this greenpeace activity uh, activists they were agitating for nuclear disarmament so a good a good objective noble objective uh, anti war nuclear disarmament so peace agitating for peace now this monk he wrote that i was surprised to see that how these peace activists are so angry so they do not see the the they think that we are angry for a good cause it's all right but anger and peace they don't go together actually so even for a good cause one should not become angry anger is always a result of obstruction of desire some desire is obstructed so therefore anger uh, desire and anger kama krodha you can reduce it to one kama desire and it comes out of rajaguna in the mind it is of the nature of mahashana mahapapma uh, mahashana means great hunger this desire kama is never satisfied the more you put it's like a, f- a fire which blazes forth the more ghee you put into the fire the more fuel you put into the fire the more it blazes forth so more we try to satisfy desire more it keeps on increasing it's not that i will satisfy a few desires this much money if i have i'll be happy and the children two kids and they're doing well i'll be happy and then um, uh, just this little group of friends and i'll be happy and this kind of house and car i'll be happy we think like that it never works like that it's always little more little change i want and then then i will be happy and that then i will be happy never comes in life it keeps on changing little by little so 
our desires keep on increasing mahashana great literally it means ashana means hunger eater so it's a great eater what is a great eater desire kama there is no way of getting fulfillment ultimately by trying to satisfy the desires mahapapma mahapapma means productive of great sin so desire forces us through temptation and fear desire forces us to do what we know is wrong so i know what is right what is wrong but this kama desire it could be for sense pleasures it could be for you know like particular partiality or uh, uh, you know obsession with a person or with a maybe for a gadget or anything from video game to anything uh, money name and fame um, position political power whatever it is it leads to mahapapma that means it makes people do very wrong things and know, know it to be iha vairinam it is a it is an enemy iha here in this in this means in the in spiritual life especially when it comes to the teaching was of karma yoga your third chapter teaches karma yoga in the performance of karma yoga this is the great enemy kama is the great enemy it makes us do these wrong things you asked why people do unwillingly also people do wrong things it is because of this they are unable to overcome desire which comes up in the mind why does it come up because of past prakriti our prakriti our nature which krishna has said people follow their prakriti this prakriti is the sum total of all our conditioning <coughs> in this life and also accumulated tendencies which have come we have transferred from earlier lives so this prakriti forces us to uh, this this uh, manifests itself in desire in our mind and it is expressed as raga dvesha in our mind we raga means attraction dvesha means aversion attractions and aversions come up in the mind to things food um, possessions place people activities raga dvesha comes up bubbles up in our mind and we follow that we do that rather than what is right you asked why spiritual life is difficult it is because of this desire that spiritual life is difficult it is it is difficult to love god because karma makes us love or desire things of the world people in the world you say what is wrong in loving people if you love people equally the well wisher of humanity that's a great thing but we don't do that our karma is very much directed to people related to us and related to us means related to this body my family my husband wife father mother children you see what is wrong in that but wrong in that means when that love makes us exceed the limits of dharma the love should be under the control of dharma dharma should not be under the control of my personal love for a few people sri ramakrishna says my nephew my niece this is maya i see gopala in everybody that is daya he says so he plays on the word maya and daya i used to see that um, in the ramakrishna mission school where i was a brahmachari when i had joined many years ago so little children study there little boys and their parents come to see the kids because the kids stay in the dorm in the in the hostel now there are these huge play fields and hundreds of children are playing so 400 500 kids are playing in different big 
playgrounds and the parents have come to see and each couple out of those hundreds of kids you know like guided missile they will zoom in on one how fast and direct how is that one little boy different from every other little boy not really so much different but for the parents that is the one my kid so that so there it is identification nothing wrong in it but when that takes you beyond the limits of dharma beyond the limits of uh, morals and ethics and it also disturbs you in spiritual sadhana so you somebody might ask is it ever possible that you will have the same kind of love for um, your children and everybody else's children that is not only not possible not only uh, possible but it should happen as you become mature as you grow in psychologically and spiritually you begin to have that same kind of attitude towards everybody the extreme level of that the ultimate uh, development of that you see in the holy mother for her everybody is her child and really like her child so she treats everybody equally uh, and she went to the extent of saying uh, the muslim dacoit amjad who was there near jairambati uh, who had great respect for the holy mother and she also had great affection for him and she said that just as as uh, sharat is my my child my son amjad also is my son sharat is swami saradanand ji who was the disciple of sri ramakrishna you know the secretary of the ramakrishna order and who was in charge of taking care of everything related to the holy mother uh, whom sri ramakrishna trusted so much you know once sri ramakrishna went and sat down on the lap of sharat who was a young uh, man at that time he was a very well built person and sri ramakrishna said i want to see whether he can take my weight take my weight means the weight of the future organization which is to come for which uh, swami saradanand ji became the uh, general first general secretary at that time it was called secretary so he was in charge of the entire organization that is the weight now this swami saradanand ji who is a brahmagyani who is the writer of this beautiful uh, extraordinary book sri ramakrishna the great master yeah. and this um, muslim dacoit amjad holy mother says both are my son and she says jamon ad just like just like sharat is my son exactly like that amjad also is my son imagine so the the evenness that the same love towards everybody it's possible and we should all move towards that um iha vairinam he says sri krishna says in this karma yoga this kama is the enemy kama the desire is the enemy um later on it will come desire is the enemy shankaracharya in his commentary a little later he says desire is the enemy for a gyani for a spiritual seeker desire is always the enemy why because the spiritual seeker knows that this desire will trap me in samsara it will not allow me to realize that i am brahman it will not allow me to uh, to have god realization whereas he says for a murkha for a gyani desire is always the enemy and for the murkha for the fool when the desire is there and he is uh, satisfying that desire desire is a source of joy i want something and i am getting something happiness 
only when the result is sorrow he feels oh it was why why did i pursue that it is all worthless i wasted my life chasing these things uh, now i have n- nothing left at that point the the, the that that person feels remorse but when uh, he was chasing that desire and satisfying that desire he felt happy he felt something good but whereas a gyani even when the desire is there he knows that it is not good uh, um, even if the, the gyani cannot uh, the spiritual seeker cannot control himself or herself and tries to satisfy that desire at that time also knows that this is not good the result will be bad for me all right now before we go ahead a couple of questions it seems jayant yes master uh, grishni you are next yes thank you um uh, we were talking about righteous anger yeah but i was wondering about if you could talk about righteous violence if there is such a thing um it seems to me i mean i mean uh, clearly in, in today's uh, issues with protests and violence there is some debate over whether the violence is either justified or righteous and it seems to me also that the you know krishna and, and the mahabharat is is all about righteous violence mm. can you can you expand on that yeah it's a interesting thing my first answer of course and the last one also will be um we won't go there because it's such an exciting topic everybody will jump in everybody has an opinion for against neutral and that will be the end of the geeta class i remember um uh, at uh, the university last year at harvard uh, this professor karen king so she had a she was an ex, she's an expert in the new testament in the bible so i took that course i mean i audited it so i was sitting in the class and in the in the first class somebody asked ah, trump is doing this trump is doing that and then she she normally responds to all questions she listened very humorously she she said listen very seriously and then she said okay we won't go there and then she went back to her <laughs> and throughout the course nobody ever asked any political question after that um which is something big thing because uh, harvard is a hot bed of political opinion and all that but before we move on um for in the case of the mahabharat it is uh, it was somewhat easier because um the what you might call the kurukshetra war was what might be called a just war or a good war the way it has been uh, way we understand it the evil people are very clear kaurava these are evil pandavas are on the side of good not only that um the duties of castes these things were uh clear cut i don't know in real life whether they were so clear cut or not but at least on paper in the story they are very clear cut arjuna and uh, krishna they are all kshatriyas and they are supposed to do this so therefore uh, it, it can be taken the, the issue whether it's violence or not is never really dealt with uh, arjuna asks this question that should i act at all fight because i'm going to kill my own relatives and this is terrible but you know the way we modern people ask this question that is not raised in the gita um uh, i remember having this discussion again in the bhagavad gita class at at the harvard divinity school also where i pointed this out that again and again in the modern discussions on gita this question is raised that uh, how is it that krishna who is god um encouraged arjuna to fight a war 
didn't Krishna encouraged violence? So, what do you say to that? The answer is that is not at all an issue. The Bhagavad Gita, contrary to what it may appear, is not about war. It's not about violence. It's not even about just war. It's not at all about that. It's a, it's a moksha shastra. It's it's a, a text which deals with. Uh, liberation, enlightenment, God-realization, the ultimate goal of human life, moksha. If you ask, uh, you are saying that, how do you back that up? Because it's clearly about war and Arjuna is asking very pertinent questions about whether he should fight the war or not. Notice, none of the traditional commentators, starting from Shankaracharya, has ever raised this question which you are raising. Is this a just war? What is a just war? Should we fight this war or not? Uh, was Krishna right in uh, encouraging Arjuna to fight the war? I mean, Arjuna wanted to uh, drop out of the war, you know, not to fight the war. Uh, this was not regarded as a relevant question at all. So many hundreds of little questions are raised and discussed and answered in different ways. This was not regarded as a relevant question. Why this is, what has happened is, um, I mentioned in an article a few years ago, it is the Western mindset with the tremendous guilt of these world wars in the 20th century, uh, there is this um, consciousness about not fighting wars. War is the evil of warfare. This is something also pretty new actually. In the 19th and 20th century, this has come up. So now it colors every kind of thinking uh, in the West. Um, this is not something that they thought was relevant um, for nearly thousand years of writing commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita. Another reason is, the texts were meant to, meant to fulfill different objectives. There were texts called the Dharma Shastras, um, so like the Manusmriti, uh, which, which deal with what is the duty, what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, what is Dharma and what is Adharma. Whereas Gita and Upanishads, this, they deal with moksha, God-realization, ultimate fulfillment, purpose of human life. So, particular right and wrong of this issue is not an issue that, that really bothered um, the commentators. Neither Shankaracharya talks about it, nor Ramanuja, nor Madhva, nor Madhusudan Saraswati. None of the whole series of commentators on the Bhagavad Gita ever even raised this question. Whether does that mean that we don't even uh, use the lessons of the Gita to, to address it for ourselves? You can. Now, there, there's a question. Um, if you want to develop a theory of just war, uh, there were people from the Kennedy School of Government who were there in the class. They asked this question. I said, your quest is not, um, not unjustified. It's a modern inquiry and it's a good inquiry. And uh, you can uh, investigate the Gita with that attitude also. But remember, that's not what the text itself is for. For example, there are people who take management lessons from the Bhagavad Gita. Gita as a manual for leadership. On the face of it, it's wrong. Because that's not the purpose of the Bhagavad Gita. But do you mean that there is no insight to be gained on leadership from the Bhagavad Gita? Of course not, there is. You can actually find a lot from the Bhagavad Gita which will be helpful for modern management issues. And the people have written wonderful articles and books and books on it. So, but one must always be very clear. These texts were very systematic. So, they, they outlined at the very beginning, they will say what is the vishaya, subject matter. 
The subject matter of Bhagavad Gita is Moksha Shastra. It is not a book on ethics, right and wrong. Right and wrong was uh, discussed in Dharma Shastra. Of course, right and wrong will come up because right and wrong is connected with spirituality. So, in that context, ethics will come up. But not ethics of war or, or social justice, for example, another big issue. Is it about caste? Is it against caste? These issues came up. You can discuss it, but remember, Gita is not about that also. This must be very clear. Otherwise, uh, I found these people had come and they wanted answers to these things um, and uh, uh, and they were not getting it. The, the, again and again the discussion was, oh these commentators, we are reading Madhusudan Saraswati, is very voluminous commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. And the feeling is, oh the questions we are interested in, the commentators don't raise those questions. What about gay rights? What does Madhusudan Saraswati and Shankaracharya have to say about that? Nothing. How strange. Uh, what about the justification of war? Uh, disarmament? Uh, why doesn't they... These are your issues. They, were not the, they are not the issues of the, of the Bhagavad Gita. But, yes, if you want, you can read the text in that way, keeping in mind that this was not what the text was about. You can draw your own conclusions and build up your own theories about it. I'm not saying it's, it's unjustified. I'm just saying that if you, are not, if you don't keep this point I made, that it is a moksha shastra, if you do not keep it in mind, you'll be puzzled. This is not a question, as the, as the scholars were puzzled. Why aren't the commentators interested in the questions we are interested in? And why are the commentators going off on obscure philosophical points, which we are not really interested in? Because the central purpose of the text is what the commentators understood it to be, moksha. And therefore, what they are saying is, is very, uh, very much in line with that. They are, they are right. You are wrong. You are coming here with the, with the wrong question in mind. But if you know this, after this also, you can ask that question and definitely you will find a lot of material uh, in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, what else did I want to say about this? Yes. So, for example, interesting point. Uh, in... Professor Amartya Sen's class, so he, he gave a class on ethics, so I, I attended some of the classes there. Um, so once, he quotes quite often from the Hindu Shastras, so he said, you know in the Bhagavad Gita, he's an atheist, a declared atheist. So he said, in the Bhagavad Gita, I tend to agree with Arjuna. In the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna uh, said that if you fight this war, it will lead to destruction and suffering and sorrow, and so we should not fight this war. And at the end of the Mahabharata, Professor Sen said, if you go to the end of the Mahabharata and you see these women wailing for their men folk who have died, there's a whole description of that, the women folk wailing for the dead. And everything that Arjuna uh, predicted, that the destruction of the family and the downfall and uh, all those things happened. They, they really actually happened after the war. So, Avanti Sen said, I agree with Arjuna, he was right, uh, he, he shouldn't have, he didn't say that he shouldn't have fought the war, he just said, uh, it's, it seems Arjuna was vindicated. Uh, I didn't give him all this thing about Moksha Shastra or not, because I don't think he would have been impressed. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's what I wanted to say. If it was about war between Pandavas and Kauravas, if that was the central issue, um, one is, that in the Gita text itself, you see how fast the context of war disappears. First chapter, it is all about the war and Arjuna saying why he will not fight it. 
second chapter onwards when Krishna starts speaking, the word fades to the background. It is about karma yoga, about meditation, about the nature of the self, about the nature of God and the ultimate purpose of human life, even about um, you know the constitution of the human psyche, sattva, rajas, tamas, all of that which seem to have nothing to do with these masses of men supposedly arrayed around with weapons ready to murder each other. No connection. Entire Gita. Um, the other point I wanted to make also was Look at somebody like Mahatma Gandhi, for example. Oh, Professor Sen even said that. He said, how could an apostle, I don't understand, how could an apostle of non-violence, supposedly an apostle of non-violence, derive his inspiration from the Gita, which is about violence? The answer, straight answer is the Gita is not about violence. If it was about a war between the Kauravas and Pandavas, a civil war between some ancient half-mythical maybe, we don't even know the exact historical status of that. Of what interest would it be to modern Hindus in 20th century and 21st century? Of what interest would it have been to Vinoba Bhave or, or Radha Krishnan or Aurobindo um, or, um, or Mahatma Gandhi? Some obscure past civil war, who was right, who was wrong, who cares? It is actually a manual for spiritual life. That's why it's of perennial interest to uh, Hindus. Yeah, so. Thank you. <laughs> uh, any other question? So, Swamiji, our deepest desires are in the subconscious mind and we really don't have any access to them. So, what should we do when these vasanas, they come, as, come up as vrittis? Yes. So, um, Krishna will talk about it. You are right. The desires are coming up from our prakriti, our nature, which is in, the, in, in a sort of stored form. And we do not have access. We cannot go there and change our vasanas directly. We have no access to them. We have become aware of them only when the desires bubble up in our minds. When we are attracted to something and repulsed from something else, then we know, oh, this is my prakriti. This is my nature. We usually don't reflect like that. We should. It's, very, it's a very good way of getting to know my own prakriti. Um, so what do we do? Krishna will tell us in the next few verses, the method. He is first telling us the problem, then the method of overcoming kama, of desire method of overcoming that. The importance of overcoming it, he has, uh, he has outlined here, he has highlighted here, because without that, our uh, ethical life in the world is not possible, let alone spiritual life. Nothing, none of that will be possible. It will be, become a terrible battle if we don't tackle this central problem of, of desire. Notice the Buddha made it the central issue. Um, first noble truth, all is suffering, dukkham. Second noble truth, the source of this uh, suffering is desire. So, Trishna, he called it, he called it thirst. And then, of course, how to come out of it and Ashtanga Marga and all. So, Krishna will tell us about it. Short answer, when it comes up as a vritti in the mind, then we become aware of it. And if normally we don't consider it, we rush to either fight against it, control ourselves, fail, or we simply rush to satisfy those desires. Uh, the sadhaka or sadhika will become aware, is alert. That this vritti which has come in my mind, if I follow it up, if I nourish it in my mind, mental level, if I express it in speech, and if I follow it in action, mind, speech, action, 
will it take me towards God realization or take me away from God realization? Because some uh, vasanas are good, uh, some are many are not. And once you are aware of that, then you have to replace the ones which are unskillful, which are not uh, according to spirit your sadhana, which are against your sadhana, uh, with positive ones. How to do that, and what is the method? Everything Krishna is going to talk about. There is a question in the chat from Sangeeta Anya. Uh, Swami Ranganathandaji in his book, Universal Message of the Gita, he writes, No emotion, including anger, is bad by itself. And anger has a place in human life. Hmm. You see some injustice going around you, it must rouse your indignation under control. Unless you have anger, you cannot react properly to it. So, anger can be channelized into socially useful purposes. Can you please re reconcile what you said with, uh, on this point uh, with your point of view? True, uh, but the answer is right there in what Ranganathanji has said. It must rouse your indignation under control. Yeah. What is anger under control? It is not anger. It is just motivation. Then uh, and then again, he says anger can be channelized into socially useful purposes. Certainly, so there must be a feeling of what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust. Otherwise, what happens is one sinks into tamas, and that is not good. So, motivation to do what is right—that is that definitely should be there. So, when I said that, don't get angry does not mean that uh, you will sit like a like a fool, uh, be uh, tamas sake, or that is. A very selfish person can say that I'm not, uh, I'm, I don't get upset when pe there is an injustice out there on the streets. But you will see that same person will get very upset when uh, the slightest problem that person has to face uh, the, in in that person's personal life. That means it's just it's just um, selfishness. It's not uh, control of anger. I will not get angry for the sake of other people. I will get angry only for my own sake. That is very bad. Swami Vivekananda also says, it is the fool who does not, who cannot get angry. The wise person does not get angry. It is the fool who cannot get angry. No anger at all is there. Fool in the tamasic sense. There is no fire in that person at all. And the wise person does not get angry. What that means? What, do, what does that mean? It channels the anger into, as Ranganathanji says, into socially useful direction, into good direction. Swami Vivekananda's his own uh, enormous feeling for the sufferings of, uh, of the poor and the oppressed, of women. So it was, there was sorrow there, there was real anger and sorrow for what was going on and therefore it was channeled into this um, huge movement which he started. All right. In social causes also, there, can, there is a useful anger, in most cases a useless anger. The useless anger is uh, often is often that, see, I am fighting for social causes, I am fighting for the oppressed, I am fighting for those who are discriminated against and my whole purpose is to show you are not fighting, so you are bad. This is miserable. It, it has no, uh, it has no um, higher purpose. There is no real sympathy for anybody. It's, there is a term for it, virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. So, I am signaling that I am more virtuous than you by showing my anger. Uh, 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 have you ever lifted a 
a single finger to do anything, sacrifice anything for those people? Probably not. So that kind of anger uh, is not beneficial. All right. Now number thirty-eight. Let's go to verse number thirty-eight. Sri Krishna develops this topic. Dhumenavriyate vanhi yatha darsho male nacha yathol benavrito garbha tatha tene damavritam. Just as fire is obscured by smoke. A mirror is obscured by dirt and the embryo by the womb, so is knowledge by craving. So, Sri Krishna gives here three examples of how karma. See, now already Krishna has collapsed anger and uh, uh, desire into desire only. First, he said, Kama esha krodha esha, Kama and krodha. Now, in the 38th verse, he is saying Kama, desire. So, how desire obstructs knowledge? How desire sabotages our spiritual life. He gives three examples. So one example is fire, which is bright, uh, but obscured by smoke. So the brightness of the fire is obscured by smoke. Just like that, desire obscures the knowledge, which is like fire. Another example, um, the dirt on the mirror. The mirror is shiny and it reflects. Uh, but it is covered by dirt and it cannot form its function of reflection. Just as this the fire which illumines by its very nature cannot illumine if there is a lot of smoke. Similarly, the mirror which reflects your face uh, by its very constitution cannot do that if there is a layer of dirt over it. Similarly, knowledge or Vedantic knowledge, it will not function if it is obscured by karma, by desire. Then the third example is the fetus, the child in the womb of the mother. The, the fetus is covered by the membrane of the womb. Ulba is, the, is, the, is the, like a skin, the membrane which, which covers. So the child which can move around, the natural movement of the child, until the child is born, it cannot do so many things because for its own protection and growth, it is restricted within the womb of the mother. So the functioning of the fire is restricted by smoke, obs obscured by smoke. The functioning of the mirror um, is obscured by dirt and the free movement of the child or the fetus is obscured by uh, the membrane of the womb. In the same way, knowledge, the functioning of knowledge which ought to liberate us, which ought to give us freedom from suffering and ought to give us joy, dukkha nivritti ananda prapti does not work at all when it is obstructed by desire. Another implication of this is, notice the gradation of the examples. Fire and smoke, just a gust of wind can remove the smoke. It's very easy to remove the smoke. But little more difficult to remove the dirt on the mirror, you have to scrub. And when it's the question of the membrane of the womb, there's nothing you can do. You have to only wait for the child to be born. Only in time it will, uh, it will come to fruition. Same way, the desire, the obscuration of desire is different in different sadhakas. In some, it is very light and it can be removed by vichara. You, re you understand that it is not good for my spiritual life. I, am, I want God realization and move ahead and leave those desires behind. It could be as easy as that. An effort of the will 
uh, guided by viveka by our understanding in some not so easy you have to scrub so chitta shuddhi is necessary uh, like the mirror has to be scrubbed then only it will become shiny and can reflect the dirt will be removed so little more effort is necessary uh, and in some the layer of karma is so so thick that one has to go on doing sadhana and wait for the time to come uh, just like the child has to be born uh, to come out of the womb so this is the 38th verse then 39th verse avritam gyaname tena gyanino nitya vairena kamarupena kaunteya dushpurena nalena cha o son of kunti knowledge gyanam is uh, covered obscured by this enemy nitya vairi the persistent enemy this is uh, who is the eternal enemy of the gyani um nitya vairi vairi means enemy nitya means constant enemy what is this enemy kama rupa of the form of desire and what is the nature of this kama dushpurena analena dushpurena pura means to fulfill it's very difficult to fulfill that means it's impossible to satisfy it the way we normally try to deal with desire that by pursuing it and trying to fulfill these desires will not work what happens is most people they chase these desires in life very few people get the opportunity of satisfying their main desires in life those who do get the opportunity if you do not satisfy frustration those who do get the opportunity of satisfying those desires they find dissatisfaction no tripti no permanent satisfaction is there not only that worse it creates habit it habituates you you want more and more of that you why satisfying karma nobody goes beyond karma this is a lesson that it takes a long time for us to learn so dushpurena anala analena cha anala means fire shankaracharya in his commentary gives um, an interesting etymology analam means he says nasya alam paryapti alam in sanskrit means enough um completion fulfillment anala means that which has there is no enough to it there is no end to it there is no fulfillment to it so anala basically means fire but you can you can derive it in this way also so it means that desire is something for which there is no full stop there is always little more uh, i'm looking forward to little more i remember this very touching story of a buddhist monk an englishman who became a buddhist monk and he wrote that um he was in sri lanka or or bhutan or somewhere and his mother was ill so he went back to uh, actually mother died he went back to attend his mother's funeral so he was telling this story in that article that when i was a kid uh, my mother raised me alone and she wa- we were very poor and we lived in this little uh, english village um, and every day Uh, when i would uh, there was a time when i would go past a shop you know there was this nice toy car and i wanted that toy car so i went home and told my mother about it and um, she said look we can't afford it and i kept on like children do you know that i will never ask you for anything more in my whole life only that one car if you can purchase for me that is it that like children uh, little kids do 
And one day he said I was coming back from school and I looked at the shop window. Every day I would stop in front of the shop window and admire that toy car. I saw the toy car was not there. So I thought maybe some rich kid has purchased. So I sadly went home and I found the car was sitting on the table. It was my birthday. My mother had purchased it for me. And so I was delighted and I started playing with it. Um, and as time goes, you know, uh, after one or two weeks, I was played a little less. After one month, it was forgotten. I think one wheel came off the car. and But my mother never let me forget it. Whenever I asked for anything after that, my mother would say, I will never ask for anything more in my life. <laughs> and so she kept that toy car um, on, on top of the Almira or something. And uh, this young man, he says, who became a Buddhist monk, he said, this was my first and deepest lesson on the nature of desire. What that little child's desire, the same desire continues throughout our lives. We always have that feeling, I will never want anything more. Let me just get these things. As we grow up, it's no longer a toy car. It may be relationship, it may be an education, maybe a job, it may be a house, it may be this kind of achievement in my life. And if we do not attain, attain it, frustration. If we do attain it, we find it's no longer as satisfying as I hoped it would be. Um, Robert Wright, who has written this book, Why Buddhism is True. He is a Darwinian, neo-Darwinian. So he says, there is a reason why satisfaction of desires is unsatisfying. He gives a Darwinian reason. He says, nature designs it in such a way. What does he mean? For example, eating sugar. He gives an example of eating sugar. But it could be any kind of um, sense pleasure. Now, the way nature sets it up is that it promises much more pleasure than there actually is. So it attracts us. It feels that I will really be happy if I eat that food, if I have this relationship, if I go to that place and see this sight. The, the promise is, is very high. And, and what nature does, the, today's advertisers have learned their lesson from nature and they give 10 times more promise of happiness. If you buy this gadget, anybody who has bought that phone, you see every all are smiling. They are all young and good looking and smiling and happy as if like that little child. In the life, any, nothing more is required after iPhone 7. That is it. Life is fulfilled. That, much, that kind of expression they will have. Nature promises this. That, um, and today advertisers also do. Uh, Swami Atmarupanandaji was in Houston. He was giving a talk in San Diego once and he was talking about this, this um, uh, you know, serial... Uh, New cereal is there, an advertisement, and the children are eating it, and they are all saying, Wow! Fantastic! Awesome! This is like, amazing! Nathmarupanji said, No, no, no. No food in the world can be that awesome, or nobody ever really does that. You know, even though in the most delicious food in the, prepared by the greatest chef in the world, if it is that also there, you don't start jumping and saying, Awesome! Wonderful! No, it is not true. That does not happen. So Robert Wright says, why it does not happen? Why does it seem that it will make me so happy? And when we enjoy it, it's not so much. She says, that is nature's, that is the logic of evolution. Nature will promise a lot of happiness so that you do it. You go and eat that fruit. Um, fulfill that activity, for example, reproduction. And nature will give you some happiness. But not that extreme uh, total fulfillment which we had hoped, the animal had hoped, uh, animal had felt it would get. 
because if it gave that total and you know that awesome wonderful happiness then you would not want to repeat it if you are so satisfied why would you want to repeat it anymore you give just enough so that it entices you so you want to repeat it or try something like that again next time and that's what nature wants you to do if a food tasted was so satisfying you get totally fulfilled and your tummy is full why will you eat eat it next time anymore it's done you have got your satisfaction no little less than what was promised and very vanishing also after some time it goes away so that is nature's way of making us function um he says dushpurena and then um another thing which i had already mentioned about the gyani and the ordinary person shankaracharya's uh, tena asau gyaninah nityavairi natu murkhasya this desire is the constant enemy of the gyani not for the fool why not sahi kamam trishna kale mitram eva pashyan tat karyam tat karya dukhe prapte janati trishnaya aham dukhitvam apadita iti the fool thinks of desire as his friend so when he is enjoying that desire feels happy tat karye dukhe prapte even shankaracharya has no doubt that the result will always be unhappiness so the end of the culmination of that it will be either be dissatisfaction or moving on to the next desire or something will happen which is the whole thing will be gone then what happens then that person feels trishnaya aham dukhitvam apadita is by this thirst for desire fulfilling desires i have been brought to this sorry state then that fool feels that oh desire is is the cause of my suffering but for the gyani natu purvam eva earlier natu purvam eva the fool does not feel at, at the beginning that desire is uh, bad gyani na eva nitya uh, nitya vairina so but the uh, the spiritual seeker knows that even when the desire comes knows that this is my this is a foe it will not take me godward even if self control does not work and that person goes and eats that cookie or that sweet somebody gave nice example of a person with diabetes the person who does not know that he or she has diabetes and is attracted to eating sweets and happily eats sweets and is enjoying the result will be bad then the person will suffer but the person who knows that i have diabetes and is attracted towards eating the sweets and then even while eating the sweets uh, will feel the you know i'm going to suffer and this is bad for me will also be suffering along with eating the sweets and so then um, why not stop eating the sweets that's the problem because karma is there if you control if the gyani controls and stops eating because the desire is there that also causes unhappiness i want it but because of diabetes i cannot get it so both ways unhappiness yeah. desire for sweets is there stopped because i i am i am knowledgeable i know diabetes i should not eat sweets if i give give in to the desire failure of will power then also suffering if i control my desire then also suffering because my desire is not fulfilled so for gyani both ways suffering is there that's why vedanta is uh, is getting you into deeper into trouble you see on the other side when you are enlightened and you have overcome desire then you are free of it that is wonderful on this side 
before getting into spiritual life, one feels that satisfaction of these desires is good and enjoys it till one gets to suffering. So, kicks and blows come later. But when one is a spiritual seeker, both ways you are trapped. Internally desire is there, but you know the problem with that desire and you are trying to control it, succeeding also little unhappiness, failure also more unhappiness. So, this is the problem. Before we go to the next verse, quickly, let me see. Yes, some questions? Prabhupada, you are next. My question was, I have been thinking about this, right? This karma, this chapter about karma, it feels like it is really a personal responsibility. I mean, uh, there is no God mentioned in the whole chapter. No, no, no. Let me stop you right there. Let me stop you right there. Uh, God, God is mentioned. It is uh, karma yoga, mai sarvani karmani sannyasya, uh, offering all your activities to me. The whole teaching of karma yoga is to convert your activities into a worship of God. Krishna puts himself forward as incarnation who is to be worshipped. Yes. I have created this world. In fact, my world is different from it if somebody else's world. And so it's like what Gaurapada says that it's a dream. I have created this world and even my birth, I'm responsible for it. So, and ultimately, it's all my responsibility to clean it up also. That's why all these Upashana and all this stuff that I'm doing is I have to clean up my, uh, myself, you know, the thing, things that I have done. So ultimately, it boils down to personal responsibility that I, my, my, am I correct saying, saying that? I mean, I'm just thinking, this is maybe if, if you are saying that it's an importance of self-effort, Purushakara is there, yes, certainly. The law of karma uh, is actually uh, a law of self-effort. It is not fatalism. Many people think that Indians are fatalistic. Uh, it's not fatalism. It's basically... That's exactly it. Yes, Swami Vivekananda said, what, you are to, what we are today is what we have made of ourselves. And the, what we do now will determine what, what, will, what we will be in the future. So, it is actually a law of self-effort, definitely. God is there and God is the greatest help in spiritual life, is the goal of spiritual life and is the greatest help in spiritual life. Uh, let us quickly deal with the other questions. Uh, Swamiji, earlier we were discussing on, you know, the ethics of war and what's happening right now. So, in a way, doesn't um, Sri Krishna really deal with it in the second chapter itself, you know, when he says that um, you're neither the slain nor the slave. So, I mean, he takes it out of, out of the way, in a sense, this whole body-mind uh, attachment. So, if that doesn't exist, then naturally the question of good, evil, etc., right, wrong, doesn't come up. Mm, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, there he gives you the teaching of the Atma, the, the doctrine of the soul, that you are not the body, not the mind, you are the immortal uh, self, consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss. So that's the teaching of, of Atma, who we really are. That does not immediately solve the problem of right and wrong. Um, and as I said, 
uh, in the Hindu scriptures, there are very clear distinctions between Dharma Shastra and Moksha Shastra. There is Artha Shastra, there is even a Kama Shastra, there is Artha Shastra, there is Dharma Shastra, there is Moksha Shastra. The four aims of human life, Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha, they all have different divisions. So what you are asking and what Girish was asking earlier uh, about just war, is this war right or not? And you relate it to current situation, things like that. Um, the answer would be, th this is not a text about that. Such issues would be discussed in the Dharma Shastras. Um, texts dealing with morals, with ethics, with duty in society. Here it only comes in, in a secondary sense, that Arjuna's duty is such and such. Now the whole issue is, how to convert your duty and your place in life into spirituality. This is the issue of, in Bhagavad Gita. Whether Arjuna should fight this war or not, from a moral perspective, that issue has already been taken care of in, in Dharma Shastras. A little bit it is touched upon in, in first chapter, second chapter. But following Professor Karen King, we will not go there. <laughs> it is an exciting and interesting topic and one can go on discussing this. Yes. Sorry, uh, I'm probably going to belabor the same point uh, which you're trying to avoid, but I really connected with chapter one in the Gita in a very profound way, uh, so to speak, you know, because I thought the word Vishad and Yoga together was really the opening for me in understanding the Gita, uh, you know, in a more, uh, what I would say, in a deeper way, in a personal way, because I came to the Gita in a stressful uh, personal situation, you know, battlefield of sorts in my personal life. But I thought the Gita was trying to diffuse the point of battlefield and stressful situation into a yoga. And when I compared my situation to what Arjuna was facing, I thought it was nothing compared to what he was dealing with. So when I look at these comments about social injustice and people getting angry and resorting to, you know, whatever they are resorting to. Um, I just feel that the key message uh, in the Gita's first chapter, especially, uh, at least in my context, was that figure out a way to convert that vishad, which may be real vishad, which may be very justified vishad, but it could be made into a yoga. And if you do, then chapter two starts to make so much more sense and it starts to put you onto a level which takes you away from the battlefield, sort of what you are alluding to, to the moksha level. And then your battle starts to become really uh, meaningful, a pursuit, if you will, and starts to kind of make you deal with it in a more coherent and more, uh, I would say, balanced manner. Not that it's very easy, you still kind of degrade yourself into the human emotions and get angry and I don't know how. I think, I, I think I understand what you're getting at. Yes, it is true. We come to spiritual life, often genuine spirituality comes out of um, sorrow, struggle, loss. Uh, when we are confronted with the harsh realities of life, old age, disease, death, uh, this is what turned Siddhartha into the Buddha. It was not just an intellectual inquiry um, for, for Siddhartha, which made him into, into the Buddha. 
it's confronting these harsh realities. And when Arjuna confronted it, and he had these deep questions about the purpose of all of this, then Krishna introduces spirituality. Till that time, Arjuna was all about Dharmartha Kama. But Krishna introduces a higher purpose of life, the highest purpose of life, God-realization, enlightenment, moksha. So yes, the beginning is Vishada. It's very interesting. Vishada Yoga, the yoga of depression. Vishada means depression. So depression yoga first, it can and often in many cases it does bring us to spirituality. When you come, confront the meaninglessness of life, the, there is no depth in what we are doing. After some time, we should, we should feel. Um, in uh, his introduction to Hinduism, uh, uh, Houston Smith, he writes that after some time, when you have satisfied dharma, thakama, you know, uh, pleasures, even after you have listened, he says, to Mozart and Beethoven, tasted the recipes of the greatest chefs, which all you can do in New York, not right now, but after the lockdown, you can do in New York. And after you've earned money and success in your life, and after, see, Artha Kama, and after you fight for your favorite political, social causes, after all of that, you're still left with the question, is that all, that's all of life, that's it, finished? Isn't there anything deeper than this, higher than this, permanent? <laughs> Not all this is transitory. So then the spiritual quest starts. So after Vishada Yoga, then comes the teaching uh, about the self, the real nature of the self. Who am I? What is the purpose of ultimate purpose of life? And does God exist? What is the meaning of life? These ultimate questions. Then only we are, we are a spiritual seeker. Who is next? Rick, you're next. Myself. Yeah. Um, the th verse 38, the third example of the embryo being covered by the amnion has a positive connotation, you know, because the, the womb and the is nourishing and supportive and protective and all that. So I wonder if this is implying that some desires are good, even though all desires may have the potential of overshadowing self some desires are obviously conducive to liberation and others to greater bondage for instance desire to go gambling in casinos is going to ruin you financially and lead to addiction but desire to go to harvard divinity school is going to be conducive to greater wisdom or knowledge yes uh, desires which lead you godward are definitely uh, they are to be cultivated they will not come under karma sri ramakrishna himself said the desire for god is not to be counted under desire and he gave the example of uh, sweets and sugar candy. If you uh, eat a lot of sweets, you're going to get acid reflux. Uh, but that sugar candy, rock candy, if you, th that's prescribed as, as an antacid actually. So though they both taste sweet, but one is to be classified as sweet and what not. The desire for God destroys all other desires, worldly desires. That is true. But even among what you're saying, even among worldly desires, among desires in the world, there are some which are beneficial, some which are not. That's why the whole idea was that desire is to be regulated by dharma. Kama is never by itself. In the, the scheme of goals of human life, the purusharthas, uh, kama is never by itself. It's always dharmartha kama. 
on the basis of morals and ethics, an ethical and moral lifestyle, then we pursue our uh, goals in life about uh, desire, you know, karma, about wealth and success and power within the limits of, of dharma. And in that there is a scale. Um, uh, philosophy and uh, art and the quest for knowledge, are they helpful in spiritual life? They are. Right. Swami Ashokanandaji, who was a Swami in, uh, in San Francisco in 1950s and 60s, uh, he, he wrote in a book for young people who wanted to become monks. He said, before becoming a monk, become a gentleman. <laughs> Which means, and then he explained, become a person of culture. Um, so, something, you know, you must have interest in philosophy, history, music, art, or some, some kind of higher, or science, higher human culture, and that is a good basis for spirituality. Um, yes, I'm also reminded of Aurobindo. He says, in the widest possible sense, life itself is yoga. Even when you, one is not consciously saying that I'm a yogi, I'm searching for God or enlightenment, I'm just living my life to the best of my understanding. That itself is yoga in, in, the, in the long run because that will take you in a slower way, uh, but it will definitely take you Godward slowly. Do it consciously, you are a spiritual seeker, you are a yogi. Do it unconsciously. You say, I'm not a yogi, I'm just living my life. You're still a yogi, you just don't know it. And you take, you'll, you'll take a much longer time to arrive at this. But, but yes, so that example of the fetus protected by the womb, which allows it to develop. In the same way, we are all developing. Even the person who is chasing money and success and pleasure and that's it. I don't want anything else from life. We'll slowly go beyond that. We'll experience things. We'll experience life. And life will teach him. Only thing is, that's a long and painful path. And the sooner we come to this, um, self, this, this self-awareness that I am on a path, on a journey, and how can I do this more wisely than I have been doing it? That's better, better for us. Yeah. This teaching about desire being the um, the, the constant enemy of the wise. There's another saying that for the, for the philosopher, uh, everything is sorrow. <laughs> so one sees through the apparent promises of pleasure and satisfaction in um, what nature promises us. And then one constantly looks for how to go beyond that, how to, go, uh, how to investigate and go deeper. All right. Now, this is the problem. And then Sri Krishna is going to give us the solution in verses 40, 41, 42, and 43. Let's, um, no, we have already gone beyond time. So let's just stop here. Is there anybody else who has uh, got a question? Two more questions. Yes. Gita ji, you want to go next? Yes, Pranam Swamiji. Namaskar. Swamiji, the struggle you described uh, the seeker goes through, is that, could that be a Kurukshetra? Yes, you can take the Kurukshetra symbolically. It's not actually a physical battlefield, but it's the battlefield of our life. Is the way? Yeah, it's the battlefield of our life. Um, uh, when Krishna says, 
to Arjuna, Maam Anusmara Yudhyacha. Contemplate me, think about me and fight the battle of life. Yudhyacha, fight the battle. Every one of us is fighting a battle of life. Starting from our personal, physical and mental health to family around us, to our job, community, career, spiritual life. All of this is your battlefield of life. And so you cannot run away from this battlefield. You have to engage in This has been given to you for your spiritual growth. And it's good that we have it. And so let's engage in it. But Krishna says, Ma Manusmara, keep your mind on me. Keep your mind on God. Whether you do it as a jnani, Krishna will explain later in this chapter, in the last few verses, how a jnani tackles karma, uh, the problem of desire. Who else is having a question? Next is iPad. Who is iPad? <laughs> Swami means uh, uh, Pranam Swamiji. Swamiji, you know, in the in the Gita, at later parts, they say that you know you should do your karm, your your uh, your duty based on your nature, on your prakriti. Hmm. So the question, and it even says that you know it's better to do what is your nature imperfectly than to do something else. Perfectly. Yes, we have already read but that part. It is we just read it, Lana. Yeah. If, if if I am able to do something perfectly, wouldn't that automatically be in my nature? Not necessarily. Uh, perfectly in the sense that what Arjuna was implying that it's a much better thing to go away to the mountains. He says, in actually in one of the verses, better to live by begging for one's food like a begging monk than to fight and in, uh, in this terrible battle and kill one's relatives just for a kingdom. Now, that might be morally, that, that might be um, a better consequence, you know, like you don't have to engage in violence. You know. But that's not the duty which Arjuna has cut out for. When you say, I do it perfectly, uh, yet you're not called to do it. And in your life, you are called to do something. Uh, so, maybe the kid has assignments for school and is not able to do those perfectly. And maybe um, the, the kid can play his favorite video game perfectly. Now what is the swadharma of the kid? Is it to struggle with those assignments and do them uh, as well as he can imperfectly? Or do wonderful, in, uh, you know, like play a wonderful games, video games uh, for hours and hours together. Now the thing is, uh, while struggling with those assignments and imperfectly doing them also, the result is that there is growth. Whereas, very easily doing something else, which comes so easily to me, video game is a bad example, but anything else that comes easily to me, uh, I am not really growing there. Uh, it was not taking me, it's not making me grow spiritually, not taking me Godward. Yeah. Small question, Swami. Just to say, if you, like you know, you have to choose a uh, later, you know, you have to choose a job or a career. Say, you know, your family tells you to do something. Yes. And you love to do something else. Yes. What should you actually do? What you love to do? <laughs> I all I always say three things. Uh, as far as your career is concerned, a very um, sort of rule of thumb. Uh, your uh, does it fulfill? Uh, is it something that you are good at? One. Is it something that you like and does it take care of your needs? Your needs, not your greed. So is it, does it fulfill your needs? That's one. Does it, uh, are you good at it? Are you do, doing a good job of it? And also do you like it? 
and you see they are mutually exclusive they, they are uh, uh, they can one you can say yes to one and you can say no to the other also so if all three you say yes then you should go ahead and do that um the last question yes. so much for next uh pranam swamiji uh, uh, question was like as you mentioned like whether somebody at any point of time can develop the desire for god realization that is good my question is uh whether or not somebody develops the desire is it a result of their past karma and in a sense i don't want to you know ask it with a negative connotation but whether a desire for god realization arises in someone's mind is it under their control or is it the result of what they have done and the the, the nature that they have acquired over See, a period of time in general desire is not under our control even for worldly things also it comes up from our past conditioning and for god realization that also comes up from as a result of our spiritual evolution uh, but in general it has come for all of us and it's it's a precious thing so one must cultivate that and nourish that once the flame is there one must protect it and it, it's a very valuable i would say it's the most valuable thing in our lives ultimately you'll see that's the only thing that matters uh, our own spiritual journey and progress at the end of our lives you'll see that's the thing which uh, you cherish above everything else in life yeah and, and that's entirely true by question in that regard also which comes up in, in, in the same bhagavad gita krishna says once you attain a certain level of spiritual uh, maturity it persists and you start from that level yes so is it possible to extinguish that flame at all or no no flame, it's going to just keep on krishna says very clearly there is no loss on this path this, he says see, this is a great difference between this and the worldly path between moksha and dharmartha kama in the other things whatever you have started the money you have accumulated it will not be carried over to your next life <laughs> the family and relatives that you have it will not be carried over to your next life nothing only some samskaras will travel with you and um, the spiritual work that we have done our sadhana that we have done the accumulated result of that that will always be there it's imperishable that's where we start off from the next life and it's its power is unmistakable that's what will so vivekananda says keep thinking good thoughts they uh, they they do not die they are always there with the they come to your help with the power of 10000 angels he uses those words yeah. as we accumulate good samskaras they they are always there and they will take us godward krishna will say to arjuna in the 6th chapter helplessly you will be brought into spiritual life i said whether you want it or not a spiritual desire will awaken in you in your next life if if a person has not end but advaita vedanta says why wait for next life let us be enlightened in this life so with that <laughs> with that spirit uh, let us bring the class to a close thank you thank you om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna rupa namastu